Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Welcome, everyone. I'm Amanda Williams, and joining me is Jim Zobel. And during World War I, General John J. Pershing considered Douglas MacArthur to be his finest battlefield commander and George Marshall to be his finest staff officer. Now, Pershing clearly preferred Marshall to MacArthur in a number of ways, but he also acknowledged that they were very, very different men. To Pershing, Marshall was a great military mind and MacArthur had a warrior mind. The military mind, according to Samuel P. Huntington, exists in a world of grays. In contrast, the warrior mind was something where everything is more black and white and loud and clashing colors at other times. So while both men would go on to have a very long, consequential working relationship together, according to MacArthur biographers, their World War I service sowed a seed of antagonism between them that would have major consequences in the future. And so today, Jim and I are going to be talking about what happened between them in World War I. Was it something serious? Is it something that is documented? Or is it merely an exaggeration born out of the difficulties of their relationship in future decades? So, Jim, let's go ahead and set the stage. Right before the United States enters World War I, Marshall and MacArthur are both young army officers. MacArthur at the time is a major, Marshall is a captain, and they're both about the same age. MacArthur is a West Point grad, uh, Marshall is a graduate of VMI, and it's already apparent, I think, by 1917 that both young men are very capable. So what are they doing when the war starts? MacArthur, as we've talked about before, he's in the War Department. He's acting as the Army press censor at that time. Uh, he had been on the general staff about 1914, and uh, his job at that time, as we talked about, was uh, working with all the news people and comes down to selling the country on the draft. And that's how he'll get noticed for where he's going to go with the 42nd Division. Marshall, at that time before the war, he's working with General J. Franklin Bell. Bell had been the chief of staff of the Army from like 1906 to 19. 19- 10. And at this point, he's head of the Department of the East. And what they're doing is they're getting all those officer camps ready, like at Plattsburgh and Madison Barracks, Fort Niagara. These are all those camps that uh, Leonard Wood uh, was really behind, um, the earlier chief of staff, who was all about preparedness. And Teddy Roosevelt, the former president, really uh, pushed these camps. And that's what Marshall is doing with Bell. He's setting up these camps, finding out all about supplying, all about logistics. You know, he had had um, experiences over in the Philippines. He had, he had had experience in a, in a lot of different places, been to command general staff school, a lot of things like Douglas MacArthur had done earlier. And he's really in a position that's putting him where he'll be later on, as is MacArthur. You know, they've got different bearings that they're both working with, and they'll know all the same people, like 
Bell had been kind of, you know, influential in MacArthur's career as well. He had been pretty good friends with the with the father, Arthur MacArthur, and they'll just be working through the same kind of channels, but just very divergent. You know, we know that they're at the staff college at the same time, but we don't know if they really know each other. You know, they're doing different things. I'm sure they've they've heard of each other, but uh, we don't we don't know if they know each other. You know, at, at that at that early point. When the war starts, both are very eager to get to France and participate in what many young officers at the time thought would be the last big war of their career. Now, how does each officer end up in France and what are their major responsibilities when they get there? Marshall, when he's working with that General Bell in the Department of the East, he gets picked up by uh, General Siebert. Now, when the when we they declared the war, the first division that they put together is the U.S. First Division, and this is going to be commanded by this guy Siebert. Siebert had been in control of the Panama Canal Zone. He was an engineer, but was just in in that position of where he was as an officer to be put forward as like this divisional commander early on. And so he'll grab Marshall, this guy Siebert, to be his assistant chief of staff of operations at this point. And so as they're putting the first division together down there in Texas, Marshall is really overseeing, again, a lot of the supply, the logistics, putting uh, together everything that the division needs to get overseas, kind of like MacArthur will for the 42nd division, because as we've talked about before, uh, uh, MacArthur gets noticed because of that working to get the draft sold to the country. And then he's also very instrumental in getting the National Guard over to France. Uh, he's very close with Secretary of War Newton Baker. And Newton Baker knows he wants to be in the infantry. And so he's the one that puts him in that chief of staff position for the 42nd Division, which will be that division that has the 26 National Guard units in it. And so both of them will get to France by different routes. Marshall will go with the first division of you know July very very early going over there to be the first division there with with you know General Pershing and the headquarters that's established over there early on MacArthur won't get there till about October of November or, or won't get there till about November early November with the Rainbow Division that he then puts together on on Long Island so both of these guys will get to France but Marshall will get there first both young officers managed to anger General Pershing pretty early on in their time in France. Can you tell us about these incidents? Well, yeah, I mean, it works out good for Marshall, but MacArthur, you really, you never really know what's going on with he and Pershing. When Pershing came to look at the 1st Division, he just went off on uh, General Siebert, uh, the 1st Division. And just let him really have it. And then when he turns his attention on the, you know, the G3, which is Marshall operations, Marshall just lets him have it, you know, that you've got it all wrong. You don't know what's going on here. And, you know, everybody's like, man, you just sabotage your whole career. And but Pershing like that, you know, Pershing, Pershing wanted someone that was going to tell him what was what. And so he'll and I think that's what plants that seed in his mind that this is an officer I need in headquarters. You know, Marshall will stay with the 1st Division through July of, of 1918. He's, you know, people say he's a staff officer, he's, he's only in headquarters. But as that G3 for 1st Division, you know, he not only makes the plans, but he has to visit all those frontline units. You know, he had seen battles in Verdun, you know, and arrived under barrages. He had, he had seen everything it was about, and he wanted to be that 
that regimental commander, you know, like MacArthur will go on to be, you know, like with the brigade command. And Marshall thought he was he was pretty set up for it. You know, he, he's very well uh, liked in the division. They know he's a capable officer when when they get rid of Siebert in that December of of uh, 1917 and they bring General Bullard in. He'll be a very prominent person under Bullard. And uh, it's he wants to be that infantry officer in the field and command troops. But everybody just recognizes him for this you know, brilliant ability to put together operations. You know, he plans the the Cantigny operation for the for the first division and then that's when he'll get noticed and or you know he'd been noticed before but that's when i, I think pershing is like I, I need you up at headquarters and so in july of, of 18 he's brought to be on pershing staff and he'll be like the assistant um chief of staff to to operations under fox connor and he'll meet all those people that will then work later in his career, like Hugh Drum and, and Connor and John Prevost Murphy and, and all these people at, at, at headquarters. MacArthur, on the other hand, you know, when he gets to France, it's and we've talked about this before, it, that Pershing wants to break up the rainbow. And like you've said before, he kind of goes outside the realm of his own rank and immediately starts writing the Secretary of War and putting news stories to the paper about, you know, not breaking up the rainbow. And, you know, people know about this and and it's going to irk Pershing a lot, you know, and, and Pershing likes to be the only star that's that's shining. And MacArthur is a very capable officer, but, you know, people at headquarters, they they call him the show off and stuff. And so then it comes down to that morning after the Luneville Baccarat sector and, and Pershing just totally rages on MacArthur. You know, this is the worst division in the army and you're, it's your fault, even though it's not your division, you're the chief of staff, you know, but everybody's following your example. And then, you know, MacArthur at that point is like, he doesn't understand it because he's like, this has to be something with my father. Did they have some kind of falling out? You know, because what have I done? You know, he, he can't see anything, you know, that that he had done. And so whereas, you know, Pershing has that, you know, kind of shine on on Marshall uh, with MacArthur. It's kind of this tentative, you know, I, I, I can see your ability, but man, you just you just kind of irk me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? that's, that's that's the way it is, you know, but but they'll both be, you know, doing the the best jobs of, of anybody really, you know, they, they both shine, um, in that, in that AEF. This is a good lead into this question, but MacArthur really seems to crave Pershing's approval. Clearly Marshall seems to have it, but MacArthur's the one that has to deal with the spectacle of a public humiliation when Pershing dresses him down and, and is complaining about the 42nd division. Yeah. So tell us a little bit of, about the dynamics here. How is MacArthur trying to gain this approval? And in the end, what is each officer learning from Pershing? What are they going to take away from this period? Under him, they, you know, they gain all the experience that, that they'll need for the future, you know, how to move um, you know, with with Marshall, he goes through so many different phases. You know, he's he's the uh, chief of operations for the a division. You know, and then he goes for the whole army, and then he'll go for just the first army. And so he'll have all this experience of how to mobilize things. You know, personnel, 
all these things that will then lead to what he does in World War II, basically organizing the entire war effort for not only the United States, but basically the Allies in many ways. You know, and Churchill will even say that himself. So, you know, it's it's not so much what Pershing instills to them as to that experience they they gain. MacArthur will gain all that experience on the battlefield and understand that you can never let up. You have to constantly push, you know, because if you don't, then the people behind you that come to relieve you, they're just going to get slaughtered again. And, you know, and you'll see a lot of that in World War II where he's bouncing all over the place and all those island operations to keep the Japanese off balance, you know, to constantly keep the, the pressure on. They learn different things that, you know, aren't so much um, what Pershing instills, but I think they get to that understanding that Pershing is this officer, duty is everything, you know, honor is everything. And they'll both have somewhat of that character when they go into World War II. And I think Marshall will retain it. I think um, MacArthur, after Batan Corregidor, he reverts to that, you know, image of that guy behind you, of that guy in the sweater with the muffler and everything. And and he'll have to get back to that kind of person um, to really run uh, Southwest Pacific effectively. I think that they both learn a great deal, but I think it's just that experience of, of war itself. And they are both very quick learners. Do Marshall and MacArthur know each other in this war? I mean, we've established that we're not quite sure what their relationship was prior to the war, but in France, did they get to know each other? Well, I don't think they got to know each other. I know they know of each other, you know, because um, Marshall's writing a lot of these operations for for the whole army, you know, and and they'll know that. And especially when when you get to to later uh, at the end of the war, they'll both definitely know who, who each other is. But no, I don't I don't think they they really know each other. They don't, you know, they're they're in different places. They know a lot of the same people. Like one of uh, Marshall's best friends is this guy James Shannon, and he was a 1903 grad of. West Point. And, you know, I think he played on either that football team or that baseball team that MacArthur was part of. And so these guys know each other very well. And and Marshall said that was the greatest loss that he had in World War II was losing that guy, that his friend, you know, Jim, Jim Shannon. Um, a lot of these people that, you know, John Prevost Murphy, he was there at, at uh, West Point with MacArthur. So they all know a lot of these people that they that they have in their lives, but I I really don't think that that they come in, you know, much contact um, at that point. There is the story, though, that in the final days of World War One, in that drive to Sedan, MacArthur's 42nd Division gets tangled up with the 1st Division, which Mar- Marshall had been part of. This apparently prevents MacArthur from getting to Sedan the way he wanted to finish out his, his time in World War One. So, What's the story here? Is this the root of all those rumors that World War One is this moment of antagonism between them? Yeah, I think that 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 is the you know the basis of it. You know how how much it was at that time. I'm not. I'm. I don't think it's much because you know nobody really says anything about it. And what it was was after October and the. Uh, Rainbow had taken the Cote de Chatillon. They begin the drive again in early November. And this, the Germans are really pushing, pulling back. They're going to cross the the Meuse at at Sedan. And that's one of the main, you know, French places that they want because of the humiliation of the Franco-Prussian War at Sedan. 
And so the French want to take it. Fourth Army under Garreau, who MacArthur was very close with, are operating to the left of, of the American First Army. And so they're pushing on at the time. And But the thing is, is Pershing wants an American division to be the first ones into Saddam. And people know this. He wants it to be to show that, you know, his army is the one that is most predominant at this point. And so what happens is Fox Connor, the operations officer for uh, you know headquarters, they want to push this. And so they go to First Army and the head of First Army is Hunter Leggett at this time. And Hugh Drum is his chief of staff. And Connor gets in touch with Drum and they write up this order about you know division American divisions moving into Saddam. See cuz the 42nd division had moved right up on the heights. And they were, you know, overlooking Saddam basically at this point um, or, you know, were, were at that position where they could be. But then when they, they Fox Hunter gives this order to a huge drum, huge drum has Marshall write up the order. And basically it's saying we want an American division, you know, to be the first in Saddam and we're going to obliviate all line of organization. And so then Fifth Corps uh, commander, Charles Summerall, he wants the first division to be into Saddam before it, because that was his old division that he commanded. And so these guys are like, well, just cut across everybody's front. And so you've got, you know, the, the 42nd and you've got the, and the French Fourth Army, they're moving in line up to the river and Saddam. And all of a sudden, here comes the first division, you know, perpendicular right across them. And they're getting into everybody else's sector. They're botching everything up. It's a total mix up. Hunter Leggett goes crazy because Hugh Drum had never told him he was going to, you know, write this order. And then it's, you know, for the rest of their lives, they're at war over this. And MacArthur hears about what's going on. And so and he, he said he went up towards the front to try and find somebody to, to end this and get a hold of General Parker, who runs the first division. And then suppose he got captured by the jur- by the uh, U.S. first division because MacArthur's got the crunch cap. You know, as you see behind, he looks like a German officer. Now, MacArthur would always say, no, I was never arrested. We figured this thing out. Whereas everybody says, oh, El says, oh, yeah, we arrested him, you know. <laughs> But regardless, they get it figured out. And the thing is, is is Parker knows what he's doing, you know, cutting across everyone. Summerall knows what they're doing. And everybody's like, you know, why are you doing this? And they're just like, well, we got this order that said we can cut across the lines, you know, just, you know, being obstinate about it. So, I mean, it's it's a lot their fault. It's a lot Pershing's fault because he was like, I, I like the first division as well to be in, in there. And so then it becomes this big hassle. And the only person that really doesn't say anything or get upset about it is MacArthur. You see all these other times when, when he was kind of a stickler about, you know, his reputation, but this one, he just, he really laughs off pretty cool about it. But then a lot of people talk now, you know, is, is, then Pershing puts MacArthur up for major general, you know, and maybe to be commander of the division. Was this some kind of way to, you know, erase all that? Because it does get erased as it is. But, you know, that's just speculation, you know. So, But like you said, does that come back to MacArthur have, being upset with Marshall, you know, about writing this order? And, right. um, you know, I don't think it is. I, 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 I don't. You know, people will talk about later on, 
when MacArthur shuffles Marshall off to this National Guard post in Chicago, you know, rather than promoting him to Brigadier General. And they say that's the reason because of that, you know, Saddam episode. But, uh, you know, I think that was something completely different. So, you know, where people look back to antagonism and in World War One, you know, I think it's it's more MacArthur during the war. You know, he later on when World War Two starts, he'll be saying, oh, those guys were from that Showmont crowd, you know, that headquarters crowd, which was based in in Showmont, France. And so it's not really to like World War Two that it seems this stuff starts to play in their mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the you know, Pershing's guys and me and um. You know, because yeah. when you see in World War II, like we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, Marshall and, and MacArthur, they, you know, they have their disagreements, but they, you know, they, they get things going and moving in, in World War II. Marshall's like the, the biggest supporter from MacArthur in the Southwest Pacific. There's a lot said. I think that the things got really goofy after Korea. You know, I think that's where the antagonism really really comes because MacArthur could never stomach that that Marshall had had voted to get him out. So what I thought was interesting was that Marshall doesn't mention MacArthur at all in his 1923 World War One memoirs. And on the other hand, flash forward to the 1960s in MacArthur's autobiography, he characterizes that order written by Marshall that caused the first division to kind of cross in front of everyone. He characterizes this, and this is a direct quote, ambiguous and extraordinary, an order that precipitated what narrowly missed being one of the great tragedies of American history. Now that's that's MacArthur in his finest prose yeah. right there. So that's written in the 1960s. But as you said, MacArthur doesn't really mention it at the time, other than to deny that he was under arrest for yeah. a little while. And then kind of in the, the interwar years, it doesn't seem to be an issue between them. So if they didn't really know each other in World War One, if there's no kind of major falling out between them in that war, no irritation, you know, between each other. And if all of that is just kind of this memory in the past, there's no World War One tension between them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I like we were saying, I don't I don't think they really knew each other. They weren't in the same area. You know, and the only the only thing that that you know really draws them together at some point is that you know thing with the order but you know it, you know Marshall wrote it but you know it wasn't Hugh Drum you know it was Hugh Drum that told him you know what to write you know and and come in the 60s you know when MacArthur's writing reminiscences you know I think a, a lot of that stuff from World War II and Korea dredged itself up you know to put him you know in in that light you know that he does because it gets you know, MacArthur will always say, no, there was no problem between Marshall and I, you know, but he tells other people big, big difference. So then why do all of the biographers tend to see World War One as the beginning of the problem? Just because MacArthur in the 1960s is looking back and deciding maybe it is a problem. I think so. Yeah, I think they, you know, they're looking for, you know, just the first, you know, possible friction between the two. And so they they highlight that one. And, you know, it, if more comes out, you know, that, that shows that they were talking about each other, you know, during that time, you know, so be it. But, you know, for now, we don't know anything. You know, we don't, we don't have any evidence that, that, you know, that was, that they were that much 
of consequence to each other, you know, in World War One. Final thoughts? Yeah, that, you know, the, I would recommend if, if people are interested and in, read that diary book that, that Marshall put out about World War One, because you see a lot of things about Pershing in there that you don't see in a lot of places. Pershing could be a real prankster. He could be a real jokester. Um, you know, even as a four-star general, he liked causing a lot of chaos, you know, when the situation was very lighthearted, you know, but the next morning he'd wake up and it was like, it never happened. I'm the general, you're the Lieutenant. You don't say anything, you know, whereas the night before it was like, come on, let's go do this, you know? So it, it, it is really funny. And I would, I would recommend it. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.